Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. Before I jump into a summary of the segments in this episode, I wanted to thank you for listening. This podcast has seen a lot of growth in the past year, and I'd love to hear what you think of it. If you want to suggest guests or subjects or just want to reach out to me with general feedback, email me at actinline at actin.org. And while you're at it, if you want to help our podcast reach even more people, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And now for a rundown of the show. First, I'll be speaking with Kyle Smith, a writer at National Review, about the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. If you haven't seen this show yet, I highly recommend it. There's only five episodes, and it's really a fantastic look at how the Soviet Union played a primary role in the Chernobyl nuclear explosion in 1986. After that, I'm joined by human rights activist and writer Aaron Rhodes to break down the Department of State's new Commission on Unalienable Rights, created to provide the Secretary of State advice and recommendations concerning international human rights matters. All the links for the articles and other reading materials on these topics will be in the show notes for this episode. And I post those every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.actin.org. HBO recently wrapped up its new miniseries, Chernobyl, a look at the events surrounding the nuclear explosion at the Chernobyl power plant in the city of Pripyat, in what was then the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Kyle Smith, a film critic at National Review, joins me to discuss. Kyle, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Kyle, first explain for us the events surrounding the show. What happened at Chernobyl and why is this a story worth telling? So Chernobyl was a nuclear power reactor that blew up in uh, April 1986 in uh, the Ukraine, part of the Soviet Union at the time. And the Soviet was a very closed uh, authoritarian system, and the Communist Party did everything it could to stop information about this from getting out, even to people uh, who were very directly affected by it because they lived within the radioactive uh, uh, area. And the world only only became aware of the problem when radioactive particles started showing up in Sweden, hundreds of miles away. And at that point, the Soviet Union and the Communist Party very grudgingly started giving up a little bit of information. Um, but uh, basically, it's agreed that they, they made things worse by, by not sharing information. And I think the Chernobyl miniseries that's on HBO is in part a parable about what happens when a single entity controls everything in a country. Um, Some people have been complaining about sensationalism in the show. For example, radiation was shown to be contagious among people who were exposed to it when it was apparently not. Um, Some descriptions of nuclear energy and radioactivity have been debunked. Also, a writer for The New York Times said that, quote, the first thing to understand about the HBO miniseries Chernobyl is that a lot of it is made up. But he goes on to say, here is the second and more important thing is that it really doesn't matter. What's your opinion on that? I tend to agree with that. There, there were a lot of details that looked very dramatic on television. Another thing that happened was a, uh, a helicopter was shown crashing because it ran into a sort of plume of radioactivity, but that didn't happen either. Um, a baby is shown sort of absorbing radioactivity through its mother because the mother was exposed to her husband who had uh, you know, radioactive poisoning. Um, that couldn't have happened either because... Uh, 
as you say, you can't pass on radioactivity from one person to another. But yeah, I think the overall uh, question always remains when you're doing historical drama, which is how much license do you want to take to dramatize it? Um, the Emily Watson character, the female physicist, didn't exist in reality, but the uh, the author of the show has said, well, she's sort of a composite of all of the uh, you know, hundreds of scientists who were trying to do what they could to piece together information in a very limited environment, a very secretive environment where there's stuff that's classified top secret. And we had to sort of boil all this down into one character, and, and we thought it was more sort of cinematic that way. I, I, I tend to agree that a certain amount of dramatic license is necessary. If it were a straight documentary, uh, the story would obviously be a lot messier, and we would go off in a lot of different directions and would have a lot more characters. But when you're trying to do something in movie format, you really have to limit the number of characters and you really have to streamline the narrative. Yeah, you wrote a pretty glowing review for the film or for the series. In uh, your review, it was titled Chernobyl, Devastating Indictment of Socialism and Not Trumpism. So let's go back and kind of go over the content of your review. Um, You wrote that... People who have watched the show say, including the show's director, Craig Mazin, that it's a denouncement of Trump. But you you debunk this. So I'm wondering, how do they come to that conclusion? How do they watch this and not come away with thinking that socialism is the problem, but rather that it's Trump? Yeah, I, I think there's there's kind of a lot of thinking that goes that goes around at a time like this. Everyone thinks about Trump first and foremost about everything. So they kind of filter everything. It's like wearing Trump-colored glasses. I think this is a unfair to Trump. But um, as I noted, there's a Twitter exchange. I think Stephen King, the novelist, brought it up, and he sort of uh, hinted that he thought Chernobyl reminded him of of Trumpism, and and the writer of the show, the creator of the show, fired back, yeah, you're you're watching it very intelligently, Stephen. Thank you for uh, for picking up on that. Of course, the show was under development before Trump was elected president, but I think it's very convenient for all Hollywood people to sort of nudge the audience into thinking uh, of Trump as sort of uh, the repository of all evil and responsible for everything. Um, What I found very salient about the show is uh, it's hard to picture anything like this happening in the United States because we don't have this one-party system where the scientists and uh, the bureaucrats, the regulators, um, the the nuclear power plant employees, um, the the professors, the experts, the politicians, they're all calling each other comrade because they all work for the same enterprise and they all are ultimately answerable to the same authority, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev at the time. The, the press, by the way, doesn't even enter into the equation in the HBO show because the press didn't, didn't really exist. There was no such thing as an independent press in the Soviet Union. They just take whatever script you gave them and, and read it off. Um, we, don't, we don't have that problem in the United States. We have a very antagonistic press. If this, something like this happened in the U.S., the press would be all over it. They would not only uh, be trying to dig up everything they could, they would uh, maybe be trying to make, make the politicians look bad, maybe try to get people fired, get people impeached, whatnot. Uh, the scientists also would not be on board with whatever the government was telling them. There would be lots of um, independent scientists nosing around and, and, and exploring the data. Um, there's all these sort of uh, contrasting poles of power, you know, uh, seats of power that are all competing with one, one another when you have a free and open democracy. And, and that's a good thing. I'm glad we have that. I'm glad we don't have this sort of uh, unified system where everybody's singing from the same hymnal. And we often hear our friends on the left say something like that, like when Obama was president, there's a lot of frustration that uh, oh, you know Congress won't do his bidding, and Chris Rock saying he's, he's like the nation's dad, and we all have to do what he says, and everybody needs to be on the same page. And 
Thomas Friedman was writing in the New York Times, wouldn't it be great if we were like China for a day, we could get things done because China's all one party. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's not good. It's good that we have separation of powers in the United States and, and the Congress and the president uh, have different interests and they can impose each other. And there's judicial review and there's the press looking over everything. I'm glad that we have this, this very messy thing we call um, freedom and democracy. So it, it, in a way, it all kind of boils down to a misunderstanding of what democracy versus socialism really is. Yeah, I, I think whenever you start talking about socialism, you talk about everything being unified. And uh, a, a thing I mentioned in my piece was Woodrow Wilson, the, the American president in the 19, uh, uh, during World War One, was the first one to sort of make this connection that the, the polity, politics would be like a body, right? And you can't have competing parts of the body, the the, uh, the brain sort of directs everything. This would be the, the executive branch and ultimately the president. And the, the arms and the legs are all parts of the same body, and they all need to do what, what the head of the executive is telling them to do. And that's very different from the founder's vision of separation of powers, where you've got uh, three branches of government, and they're all jealous of their powers, and they're all sort of competing with one, one another. It's it's harder to get things done than, than Woodrow Wilson would have liked. It's harder to get things done than Barack Obama would have liked. It's harder to get things done in general in the U.S. because that's the way it was set up. It's, it's hard to get things done because uh, we have all these competing power sources and in various ways they're accountable to, to different constituencies. Um, you, can't, you can't get your judges through to the Supreme Court, for instance, unless you have 51 seats in the Senate these days, 51 votes in the Senate. And in order to do that, you have to compete in lots of different states. It can't just be a, a bi-coastal party. Uh, it's all set up on purpose so that you know different different groups of people, different states, all get a say in how things get done. So you have to forge a consensus rather than just sort of ram it through. The Hollywood Reporter has recently said that Russia is apparently working on its own show about the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl, and it'll be about Soviet KGB officers apparently discovering American involvement in the disaster, a CIA agent working at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Um, It's commissioned by NTV, which is a network owned by the media division of Russian natural gas company Gazprom, which is pro-Kremlin. Have you heard anything about this show? Because I I think it's in post-production, and in my opinion, it's pretty much an admittance of guilt that they feel that they're still embarrassed and need to cover their tracks. Yeah, this sounds like uh, the wackiest idea for a film since Oliver Stone's JFK blamed it on, uh, you know, fascist elements within the uh, the the alleged right-wing fascist coup uh, plotters within the U.S. government rather than the uh, communist Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, yeah, I, it makes no sense whatsoever to me. I've never heard of any uh, any reason to think that, that uh, outside forces, Americans or CIA, were responsible for this. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of blame shifting, and there's still a lot of sensitivity around it. And, and maybe maybe even Russians are watching Chernobyl, the HBO show, and going, wait a minute, we were never told this whole story, and we were never told how much danger we were in, and can we trust uh, anything Vladimir Putin tells us? And I think the answer is probably not. The show's creator also tweeted that, quote, the lesson of Chernobyl isn't that modern nuclear power is dangerous. The lesson is that lying, arrogance and suppression of criticism are dangerous. I mean, if you take that at face value, I think it'd be pretty easy to say that in one way, the miniseries could also be a warning against censorship that we're witnessing on the left, too. Would you say the same thing? Yeah, I, I think if, if it did happen in the U.S., if, if there was a sort of total lockdown, it would sort of have to come from the left because the, the press is is very left-leaning. They're way more likely to support what, what Democrats are talking about. So um, 
the press is, is notably antagonistic and hostile whenever there's uh, a Republican government in power in, in the U.S. Um, there might it's conceivable that it could come to pass that if there are a president that the, that the press really loved and there's a catastrophe that they would sort of work in cahoots with the president to cover up facts. Um, I, I think that's probably not going to happen, but it's more likely to happen on the left just because of the, the political affinity there. What do you say is the main warning of Chernobyl? The warning is when one entity has all the power, it should be very, very suspicious. It's, it's just like a monopoly of... Of, of any other product. If, if there's a monopoly of information all coming through the same source, you have to be very suspicious. It's much better to have competing interests to get the truth out. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Every year in June, Acton University brings together nearly 1,000 people in Grand Rapids, Michigan to explore the foundations of a free society. And this year, we're excited to be opening registration for each evening's dinner and plenary session for those who can't attend the full conference. Join us on the evening of June 18 to hear Mary Ann Kalam, a politician in Estonia, speak firsthand about her witness of Soviet-occupied Estonia and her work to champion freedom after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Save your spot at this event before seats fill up and register at actonorg slash events. On May 30th, Politico reported that the State Department has released a notice in the Federal Register stating that a new commission on unalienable rights is going to be established. The report reads that, quote, the commission will provide fresh thinking about human rights discourse where such discourse has departed from our nation's founding principles of natural law and natural rights. To help explain some of the basics behind the news, Aaron Rhodes, human rights activist and co-founder of the Freedom Rights Project, joins me. Aaron, thank you for coming on to the show today. Thank you, Carolyn. Since the news has come out, um, there's been a lot of mixed reactions from people, especially around the language of the commission. A writer for The Washington Post claimed that using the term natural rights in this context could be used to, quote, justify a tougher stance on immigration and, quote, traditional family structures. So, Aaron, can you help clarify this a bit? Why would natural law and natural rights cause such criticism? Well, they, they shouldn't. Uh, because natural rights are the foundation of the freedoms that Americans enjoy. The, be- the, the belief that uh, we as human beings, not just as Americans, but as human beings, enjoy inherent rights to basic freedoms are, are, the, are really the, the basis for the success and the, the, the free society that Americans enjoy. And I think it's extremely depressing, frankly. You said reactions were mixed. But I think that's that's uh, that's an overstatement. They, they, all the reactions have been negative, with very very few exceptions that I'm aware of. And 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 it seems as if um, people somehow feel threatened by the idea of natural rights. Uh, I don't understand this because I said natural rights are what guarantee us our freedoms, based on the the belief that these rights are rooted, that are inherent, and that they are rooted in nature. And that therefore they're sacrosanct, and that they they provide a kind of sacred canopy over the individual, a penumbra of freedom that uh, the state can't violate. In religious thought, natural law precedes the development of natural rights in the political and social sphere. 
Um, But Roger Pilon, the vice president for legal affairs at Cato, on the other hand, noted in a recent piece on the new commission that natural rights, as expressed in the Declaration of Independence, precedes the natural law theory. So how are these distinctions important when we're talking about the State Department policy? Well, they are they are they are important because we don't know exactly how which way the State Department is going to go in in making appointments to this commission, and and it's clear that some people fear that uh, by but that an emphasis on natural law would uh, bring in um, the influences of a kind of orthodoxy into thinking about human rights. And would associate the the human rights policy of the United States with with uh, conservative Catholicism, for example, uh, because obviously um, natural law is the very important element of conservative Catholicism. A lot of the, the a lot of the theorists working in natural rights come out of the Catholic tradition. I think this is where the fears are coming from. And I think, and I, and I think that that uh, the what would be, you know, they they're forgetting the natural rights aspect, <laughs> and and Pompeo uh, himself uh, made very strong reference to natural rights when he spoke, and and natural rights are the are are the are the foundation of freedoms in America, and the founders of the United States, in writing the Declaration of Independence and so on, uh, were talking about natural rights. Obviously, like you just said, we've come a long way from the founders' understanding of natural rights. We've seen a lot of headlines claiming that, quote, health care or abortion are human rights. Two days ago, I saw a headline that said, being yourself is a human right. So how have we come to this modern interpretation of human rights? How, how, where did this evolution come from? Well, this has been something that has been going on for a long time, uh, ever since the notion of, of, of natural rights or human rights started to make headway, and, and, and since the founding of the United States. And in, in our history, uh, the criticism of, of, of our natural rights uh, of foundations began, you know, early in the 19th century. And the, the slaveholders attacked the notion of natural rights and said that, you know, rights are something that is determined by the state and by customs and so on. This notion of inherent rights doesn't make any sense. And the progressives picked up on this, uh, saying that rights, you know, that this is a kind of fantasy, that natural rights are really a cover for a kind of possessive individualism, which is selfish and doesn't have anything to do with the needs of the community and 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 so on. And they and they, they all these forces, which really originate in different places but converge around the attack on natural rights, have found it as an obstacle to their political agenda, because natural rights uh, protect individuals, the freedom of individuals from the imposition of political agendas by other people. So what kind of policies have we seen resulting from the current understanding of natural rights? They're mainly reflected in the work of the United Nations, because the United States hasn't signed very many of these UN human rights treaties. And the United States policy has always tried to focus on civil and political rights, which are basically the same, another way of talking about natural rights. 
But on the international scene, you have, you know, this very widespread embrace of the of economic and social rights. Uh, you have uh, human rights being basically a cover for the advance of a sort of watery socialism around the world. And you have countries like North Korea, which, you know, burns political prisoners alive, uh, bragging about their human rights compliance. They, they brag about the fact that they have, uh, quote, unquote, free education and uh, free health care. Um, uh, for their population, and 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 so that when they are examined uh, in the United Nations, it, you know, in the Universal Periodic Review process, for example, uh, one would get kind of a, the sense of a, a kind of mixed a mixed picture. You know, yes, they do treat people horribly, and they and they and they and there aren't any political freedoms. But on the other hand, look at um, look at their their uh, social programs. And this is the kind of moral equivalency that really eats into the heart of the idea of freedom and and confuses everybody about human rights. What would this commission do that the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor is not already doing in the State Department? Uh, well, I think the, the, the Bureau of uh, Democracy, Rights, and Labor isn't really a think tank, um, you know, t- uh, looking at the, the, the foundations of the idea of human rights and, and measuring current concepts against that founda- those, those foundational principles, which is what the, the uh, commission appears to be aimed at. The Bureau of Human Rights basically implements U.S. human rights policy um, and creates a report every year uh, based on reports from embassies around the world on the state of human rights in the world, and it it guides um, uh, the, uh, the 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 nitty gritty of uh, of human rights policy, but it doesn't deal with um, uh, big ideas, as far as I can see. What kind of progress would you like to see come out of this new commission? I think the work really to be done is internationally because uh, um, the the commission could help the State Department with its language. Uh, the you know rhetoric is so important in in promoting freedom around the world, and we have to go into the international community with language that makes sense to people around the world and talks about their their individual rights and and you know, okay people will say well people don't believe in individual rights look i don't i don't believe that i've i've worked in you know 50 countries around the world and everybody understands their freedoms it could uh restore america's leadership on human rights uh internationally i think this is this is something that is that is desperately needed because this past you know Two or three administrations, American administrations, have let this whole subject slide in a very dangerous way. The U.S. has lost its its reputation for promoting human rights, and that has always been our strongest suit uh, in the world. And it, it has always been what has drawn people to to our policy, drawn people to our our political tradition, and made uh, made people trust America uh, as being the good guys in the world. And and I, and I think um, the commission could also assist uh, the American people understand their own freedoms, because they're gradually losing respect for them. 
many, many young Americans don't understand the difference between socialism and, and freedom. They don't understand uh, that uh, the freedom of expression is important and that uh, the government should not impose on, on free speech and shouldn't impose on the freedom of association and the freedom of religion. Uh, and I think by opening up the public space for more uh, frank discussion of these questions, this would add some juice to our political life. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me and helping to explain a little bit more of the basics behind this new commission. And I look forward to the next time you join me on Act in Line. Okay. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you for listening today. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I would love to hear it. Every week, our podcast team is working to bring you the best show, and we couldn't do it without you. Let me know what you think about this podcast and email me at actinline at actin.org. This episode of Act in Line is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.